everybody. Welcome to Flight Deck. This is an inside look at the New York Jets, and I'm your host, Rich Savini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. This is our post-Super Bowl official start to the offseason episode. I'm going to lay out the next month or so in terms of possible roster moves, personnel decisions, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Super Bowl, and we'll touch on it in the second segment with former Jets defensive tackle Mike DeVito, who played for the Chiefs when Andy Reid first took over as coach. Looking forward to some great insight from Mike, and of course, we'll get his take on the current Jets. The one thing I'll say about the Super Bowl is this, and I'm looking at it through the prism of a guy who covers the Jets for a living. So remember that. What the Chiefs did gives the Jets hope for the future, and I mean 2024. And what I mean by that is this, the formula. Their formula was strong defense and balance on offense. These Chiefs were different than the previous Chiefs team during this dynasty run in that they didn't rely on a high-powered offense and Patrick Mahomes throwing the ball all over the place. They reinvented themselves during the season, even late in the season, and took on a different personality, a new way to win. That's great coaching by Andy Reid. Fun fact, in their last 10 games, including four in the postseason, the Chiefs did not score 30 points in a single game. In fact, they averaged only 21 points per game over that span. That's basically the league average. The Jets, the freaking Jets, who couldn't score all year, so we thought, actually hit 30 points twice in that same span. Kansas City played great defense, proving that defense still matters in today's NFL, and that's good for the Jets because they're built on defense. Now, they don't have Patrick Mahomes. No one does. So he's the X factor, the game changer, the field tilter, the built-in advantage who will be around for a long time. So it's going to be extremely difficult for the Jets or anybody to take him down. But what I'm telling you is this, the Jets have to go into this offseason thinking we have to beat the Chiefs at their own game. Don't try to be something you're not. Keep the defense intact and build up the offense. Find an identity. Find an identity. Aaron Rodgers is going to be 40, 41, actually. He is 40, and he's coming off that Achilles injuries, and you don't want him throwing the ball 40 times a game. My fear, though, is that Rodgers is going to be Rodgers. With his ego, he's going to want to sling it all over the place, ignoring the obvious truth. Brees Hall needs to be the focal point of this offense. Rodgers needs to check his ego, like Mahomes did, and be a team player. Can he do it? We're going to find out. Enough philosophical talk for now. Uh, what I want to do now is get into some nitty-gritty, some of the pressing items surrounding this Jets team in mid-February. Let's talk about Zach Wilson. Yes, the Jets are looking to trade him. I wrote last week in a story on ESPN.com. They'll, they'll probably get the equivalent of a sixth or seventh round pick, probably a conditional pick. One assistant I co uh, coach I talked to, not on the Jets that I talked to for the story, was kind of joking around. He said, I'd give a two-week stay at a Best Western for Zach Wilson, saying that he's not a fan. 
it would be really embarrassing if the Jets cannot find a trading partner. Fun fact, number two, the last quarterback, the last top 10 quarterback drafted in the top 10 to get cut by the team that drafted him was, you have to go all the way back to RG3, who was the second pick in the 2012 draft and, you know, ends up getting getting cut by Washington. Not traded, cut. Now, so the Jets, I think they'll get something for Wilson. I think he wants to go to a team with a strong offensive coach. I could see something like Minnesota or Arizona looking for a backup. He may have to settle for a number three job. You know, I don't know anyone's going to be knocking down his door to offer him a number two job. Folks, he's not going to turn into a star. Yes, he does have talent, but we know his shortcomings. Yes, the Jets did him no favors with the way they treated him, but let's be real, he ain't it. Now, this could linger to March, maybe later, when the rest of the big-name quarterbacks find places like Cousins, Fields, Russell Wilson. Once they find their new homes, then the quarterback musical chairs game will continue down to the backups, and that's where I think the Jets will find a home for Zach Wilson. Now, February 20th, coming up real soon, that is uh, when the franchise tag window opens. Teams have two weeks from that point to put a franchise tag on a player. I do not expect the Jets to put it on Bryce Huff. The projected cost for a defensive end is $23 million. I do not think the Jets will devote that much of their cap space to Bryce Huff. Now, I know a lot of folks on social media are clamoring for the Jets to do a tag and trade. I do not see that as a scenario. Um, you know, first of all, you know, you're going to put, you're going to eat up $23 million in cap space uh, in the interim while you're trying to trade him. And then you have to find a team that's willing to pay him a huge salary on a long-term contract and give up a pretty good asset. So I don't think there'll be a team to do that. I think the Jets will try to sign him before he becomes a free agent, but it's it's going to be tough. I mean, let's read the tea leaves. The rumblings I'm hearing is that he could be looking for upwards of $20 million. And, you know That is somewhat speculative, but uh, not wouldn't be shocked if that's what he's looking for. I think... 18, $15 million a year is probably more realistic. I'd be surprised if the Jets go that high. For If the Jets sign him for that much, you're talking about a player who only played about 42% of the snaps last year uh, with John Franklin Myers, who I think will be back, and Jermaine Johnson, who absolutely will be back. Maybe Huff is your third defensive end. What about Will McDonald? You know, if I'm Woody Johnson, I'm asking Joe Douglas, tell me a why again? We used the first-round draft pick on Will McDonald if he's barely getting on the field. So I think this all factors into the Huff decision, and so that's my my prediction is that he is going to walk in free agency, and I think there'd be a good chance the Jets get a, a comp pick in 2025, maybe a third-rounder, depending on what they do and their, with their rest of their free agent money. Now let's talk about Woody Johnson here. Uh, explosive comments at the NFL Honors. In Las Vegas, I thought they were unnecessary and unproductive. It was a weird time for him to be like George Steinbrenner. Look, everybody in the building knows what's at stake. You think Sala needed to be reminded that he has to win or be out of a job? I thought the comment about Zach Wilson was a gratuitous shot, uh, damaging what little trade leverage they had with Wilson. You know, saying, you know, we didn't have a backup quarterback last year. 
the weird thing about the whole Woody Johnson comments were, you know, with three games left in the year, he actually gave a, a positive, upbeat vote of confidence for Sala and Douglas. So then they go two and one the rest of the way with Trevor Simeon at quarterback. And then he decides to be Mr. Tough Guy. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that that story by The Athletic probably factored into Woody's uh, attitude at the NFL Honors, which is somewhat typical because people who know Woody Johnson will tell you that he has rabbit ears. He pays too much attention to what is said in the media. Early in the year, I made on a podcast, I, I did some reporting on the defense, um, made some pointed remarks on the podcast, and I, Johnson got wind of him, and he actually started interrogating people in the organization to find out about those comments and the validity of them. And so Woody pays too much attention to what's going on outside the organization. Now, he did make one really interesting comment. He said Robert Sala is going to be concentrating on offense this year. That, of course, raised a lot of eyebrows. Sala has not coached offense in the NFL like ever. That tells me that Woody Johnson and, and the organization is looking for more oversight on offense, someone to watch over Nathaniel Hackett, who we all know did a poor job last year. I don't think Woody did a good job of explaining this. I, I don't think Salah is going to be calling plays, and I think what Woody, if he had a chance to do it again, would probably say something like, this is the natural growth for Salah in his time as a head coach, evolving taking on more responsibility, but that's not the way he explained it. You know, they hired Sala to be a CEO-type coach, not leaning offense or defense. I think that's the way they should let him be, but let's be real. Aaron Rodgers is going to be running the offense, and everyone else will be the yes-men. Let's talk about some staff changes. Sala got rid of the receivers coach, Zach Azani, and the running back coach, Taylor Embry. Not a shock. We knew there would be some minor changes, especially on offense. Azani was still under contract, and they did offer him to stay in a different role, but he ended up going to the Steelers. I think there was some unhappiness in the wide receiver room. I think some exit interviews with players might have uh, not worked to Azani's favor. Let's put it that way. I think Sean Jefferson is a good hire. He's played in the league. I think he'll be able to connect with some of the veteran guys like Lazard and even Garrett Wilson. And interesting note, he coached Hollywood Brown in Arizona a couple of years ago. Sean Jefferson did. Brown will be a free agent. Something to write down, perhaps, as we get closer to free agency. Couple of front office moves. Rex, Har Rex Hogan gone. That was a surprise. Chad Alexander goes to the Chargers. That was a promotion to assistant GM. Now, I know some people are asking, why didn't he simply get promoted to assistant GM with the Jets, replacing Hogan? Well, you know what? I, I think, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Jets are going to just eliminate that position, that assistant GM position. I think Woody Johnson might be trying to consolidate the front office, perhaps a cost-cutting measure. And I think that was a factor in Hogan's mysterious ouster. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of that, but I think that may have been one of the reasons. So really, Joe Douglas is down two key lieutenants as we get into the heavy season. So that's a little bit of a concern, and I think he'll probably wait until after the draft to replace Alexander as a personnel director. Good luck trying to find a quality guy amid the Jets' current situation with an obvious lack of job security for everyone. 
Now, you're going to see some contract restructures coming up here in the next couple of weeks, next few weeks. Only $5 million in projected cap room right now. I think they can fix that quickly. Quinn and Williams, DJ Reed are candidates to restructure their deals. CJ Mosley is a candidate, but I also wouldn't be shocked if they sign him to just like an all-new deal with some guaranteed money. Right now, he has no guarantees, and he's got a $21 million cap charge. So I think that screams out for something to get done. I think JFM could restructure. Lake and Tomlinson, I think he might be toast, people. Uh, $18.8 million cap charge, way too much for a guard who has not produced up to expectations. I think he might be a goner. I think C.J. Ozama could be a goner. Alan Lazard is going to stick because they owe him $10 million, but I wouldn't be shocked if they do a minor restructure to save some cap room. So if they cut Ozama and Tomlinson and rework a few deals, I think they should be able to get to 30 to $40 million in cap room fairly easily, maybe even more, depending on how far they take it. Look, this organization is all in for 2024, so they're probably going to be willing to compromise some future cap more than they would under ordinary circumstances. I'd like to welcome in our special guest, Mike DeVito. You know him, of course, as a rock-solid, run-stuffing defensive tackle from back actually on the Jets' last playoff team, believe it or not, 2010. He played for the Jets for six years before moving on to the Kansas City Chiefs, where he spent three years. Mike, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time and joining Flight Deck. Rich, I love hanging with you, brother. Thank you for having me on, man. It's always an honor. Oh, it's our pleasure. Mike DeVito, one of the nicest guys I've ever covered, and I've covered literally hundreds of Jets players over the years, and uh, great dude. He's actually getting his PhD in philosophy in the fall. How awesome is that, Mike? Uh, we're going to have to call you Dr. Uh, Dr. DeVito or Doc Mike next time we have you on. <laughs> oh, Rich, I, hey, I really appreciate that, man. I appreciate the words. I've, I've always had so much respect for you and what you do, and um, you're at the you're at the top of the game, Rich, and and in a hard market. So I've always looked up to you as a as a true pro. Uh, but yeah, no, the the PhD will be done hopefully in September. And uh, yeah, I'm not I'm a doctor in philosophy, so I don't know if you I don't know if I uh, you want to be saying doctor Devito, then people will be thinking I can actually help them. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> amazing. <need> <laughs> well, these are these are good times for you. I mean, the Chiefs winning. Uh, I know you follow the Chiefs very closely. You spent three years there. Take us into uh, Super Bowl Sunday at the DeVito household. Uh, how how great was that? Watching, you know, an amazing finish to that game and seeing them do it for the second year in a row and the third time overall. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. So it was the first time my oldest son Rocco. He's he's ten. Uh, it's the first time that he really wanted to sit down and watch the game with me. Uh, and so we sat there and watched the Super Bowl together, at, you know, after I did some stuff er earlier in the game. Uh, we sat down there, basically watched the second half together in overtime. And uh, that was a that was a really fun experience. It was the first time he's been really interested in it and uh, curious to get my thoughts on it. And uh, and so it was fun. And so that was a, a, a you know, so not a silver lining, but it was a, uh, an extra added benefit to uh, getting to watch the Chiefs in the Super Bowl uh, was to get to watch them with my son. 
And you're the perfect guy to ask this question because you you signed there in 2013. That was uh, Andy Reid's first year in Kansas City. So you were there yeah. at the ground floor when this change took place. And FYI, the Chiefs were 2-14 and 14 the year yeah. before. You get there. They go 11 and 5. Maybe it's the DeVito factor that changed this whole thing, <laughs> that changed this whole thing around. But seriously, you go 11 and 5, Andy's first year. And that just, ever since then, they've been, they've been riding high. What, what yeah. was it about this guy? I mean, did you know what you were signing up for, Mike, when you went there? I mean, you signed up with a 2 and 14 team. Obviously, they, Andy Reid did some really good things in Philadelphia. Did you know you were going and joining forces with a, a legendary coach? Yeah, you know, I knew that right away when I, you know, I'd, I had the time to sit down and meet with Andy when I got there. Um, you know, I've, there are very few times that I've been starstruck. I think, um, Rich, I don't know if you were in the locker room in in uh, New York when Brett Favre got there. I think that yeah, was one sure. time. Yeah, everybody was kind of starstruck. Mm -hmm. um, but this was, you know, so few and far between that I've been starstruck, Brett Favre being one of them, but sitting down with Andy Reid, my initial uh, meeting there in Kansas City, I was like, wow, I can't believe, you know, I get to play for a Hall of Fame coach. Um, and, and we knew it then that he was a Hall of Fame coach. So, so yeah, no, I, I knew what I was getting into. His philosophy said it's easy for guys to buy in. I, I think that he's a guy that you're around to win. And as a, you know, that player coach dynamic, it's so important. Trust is so important. And, um, uh, you know, there's no, you know, there's no, uh, there's no BS with Andy Reid. There's no politics. There's no anything like that. Like he's a one that his approach, um, again, was well thought out, systematic and uh, that everything had, a, there was a rhyme or reason to every rule, everything that he had in place. The schedule was the same. The schedule that we had there, you know, when he gets to the, you know, game, you know, when we get to the game before you know, on Saturdays, when we get to the hotel, uh, when the buses leave, this, that, and the other, when the meals are, it's been the same for 11 years. I mean, he's just very, uh, very systematic in his approach. And, uh, and so as a player getting there in 2013, I knew that we were going to be successful and, and it wasn't the roster when you, when, you know, when I first got to Kansas city, they had a ton of pro bowl guys, you know, you had the Tom Mahalis and the Justin Houston's and the Eric Berry's, um, like Smith was uh, your quarterback. You know, then. Yeah. Those, yeah, Alex Smith. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Brandon Albert, you, you, Jamal Charles, Dwayne Bow. I mean, you were stacked with guys. So it really is this, a sort of case study in how you can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't have a culture uh, and you don't have a locker room that's bought into the philosophy and culture, it doesn't matter how good the players are. Um, and so this goes back to my original point. I, I think that that's been the sort of underlying key to success is that everybody knows and trusts what Andy Reid, uh, what Andy Reid's doing. Um, and it, you know, it, it's never wavered in 11 years that the locker room, while there've been different guys and different personalities and, and everything like that, um, you know, the, the underlying message and the underlying core foundation of that group has been the, been the same. Uh, and, and I think that that's been a big reason for their success. You missed Mahomes by a couple of years. He came in 17. Yeah. You know, you your last year was 15. Um, have you ever met him? Have you, do you know him? I've met him a couple of times. Yeah, I met him twice, Rich. I went down. Um, there were two years that I went down to do the chapel, and they came in uh, three years, I think. I went down to do the chapel, and they came in to play the Patriots. And so I got to meet him two of those years. And uh, one thing I, I noticed 
what was interesting is the guys came up to me the first year I was there, the first year that he was starting, I think it was 2018. And I went down to see them and some of the guys, some of the leaders that were there when I was there, the Anthony Sherman's and Dustin Colquitt, they came up to me and they're like, Mike, this, this guy's amazing. They're like he's obviously incredible quarterback, but he's, he's a down to earth one of us, you know what I mean? And you know, Rich, you've been around quarterbacks and it's, it's nothing against anybody else, but there's, you know, a persona, there, there's a certain swagger that comes with, you know, most quarterbacks. And I, and I understand it, a persona and uh, almost the celebrity status, right? You're the, you're the guy. And so the, the Mark Sanchez says is, and the Alex Smiths and the Brett Favre and the guys that I've been around, um, there's a certain persona that those guys carry and they're not, not bad or, you know, not bad or good, but just what it is. That's part of the, being a, being the quarterback in the NFL. Um, but with, you know, what I got, as a message from the guys when I got down there was that Pat Mahomes was very much not like that. He was very much like just one of the guys, you know, you couldn't tell he was a quarterback based on his, you know, how he carries himself. He, you know, was very humble down to earth. And, uh, and that's, that's powerful when you have a guy and this was, and this is again, across the board in Kansas city, when you have a guy that um, is that good, right? One of the best to ever do it. And yet he's, you know, you talk to him and he's just like one of the guys um, that's powerful in the locker room. And, and what that does is it it's hard for anybody in that locker room to have an ego because if you're, you know, if the, the greatest ever, the half a billion dollar contract guy is just a down to earth, humble lunch pail type person. How can anybody else, you know, have an ego in that locker room? And so that's, that's powerful, but yeah, no. So that was the, the, message i got from the guys is that mahomes is incredibly humble uh which is somewhat of a paradox given uh you know his you know how successful he's been watching the chiefs so closely and rooting for them over the years have you become a taylor swift fan <laughs> you know <laughs> it's interesting i've been a swifty for a long time i um i uh uh when my son was born my middle guy um, even my older guy, we, we, you know, you, you got to dance him to sleep, you know what I mean? And so we put the pop music station on and Taylor Swift stuff was always running. So this was back in 2013, 14, 15, 16. Um, uh, and I'm dancing him to sleep with Taylor Swift. Uh, and so I'm, I'm boogieing around in my, in my, uh, living room, holding my son, trying to get him to go to sleep, dancing to Taylor Swift. So I've, I've been a Swifty for a long time. She's helped me to put the kids to sleep uh, many a times. Uh, but man, she's what an incredible, I mean, it's just, it's not surprising that when you look at the chiefs, you got all those guys, hall of famers at the top of their uh, career, you know, top of their discipline. And then, you know, you got Taylor Swift, the greatest, you know, uh, in the music world. Um, they're just, it's a match made in heaven there with, with Kelsey and, uh, and T Swift. So fun. that's been a fun storyline. Hasn't it been rich? Yeah. I just want to ask you a couple of Jet things, Mike. I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, yeah. you've been around some big-name quarterbacks. The Jets, of course, had Aaron Rodgers this year. What was your take on the, just the Jets season and the way it fell apart so quickly and, you know, the, the so much hype around Rodgers and then losing him so quickly? I mean, I, you were probably watching that game when he went down. You probably knew right away what it was. And just from, you know, we know you still bleed green, too. I don't want the listeners to think that you're all Chiefs. You know, you spent six years with the Jets jets you know how much did your heart break when when it fell apart like that broken it was broken and the thing is you know i i understand the criticism and rich you've been in the market for so long you you know how you know um 
how the standard is very high in New York. And uh, if you don't live up to it, you're going to, you're going to hear about it. Um, and rightfully so. But I just knew, you know, as a team, when you not just not just the fact that you lost a Hall of Fame talent at quarterback, the key position day one, um, it's not just that. It's it's the emotional punch to the gut that I'm sure everybody in that organization felt when you think and we've put all our eggs in this basket and now week one, it's over. I mean, for the success that they did have. I was very surprised because there are not a lot of teams that can, you know, when you look at the hype and the buildup and the excitement and the um, optimism going into that season, and then all of a sudden Rogers goes down in three seconds, uh, you know, that's, that's tough. And so I understand the criticism, uh, but I think that I don't think any team survives that. And I know there's been talk about, oh, we didn't have a backup quarterback. This that, yeah. Backup quarterback isn't going to get you, where you want to go doesn't you could have had anybody it doesn't matter you're not once you lose rogers week one you, you're it's over it's over uh you're just the emotional everything coming back from that is is hard so again i get the criticism uh at the same time i think i, I still want to see sala and everybody and rogers with a full year healthy i think this you know it's a totally different it's obviously a totally different outcome and so i'm still i'm still very optimistic um that you know Rodgers comes back is still at the top of his game and he gets, you know, the jets to where they're capable of getting to, because we see the defense has talent. We see the guys around him have talent. Um, but the whole thing was built for, for Rogers. Uh, and then it just, you know, obviously goes to hell right away. So I don't know, Rich, I mean, I'm sure you're covering the team. What was the locker room like after, not that I'm interviewing you, I'm sorry, but I'm just curious, like, what was the locker room like after that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was devastating. Well, they won the game that night. So that was yeah. kind of a weird feeling in the locker room because guys were happy after the game. It was just a really – it was one of the odder locker rooms I've ever been in yeah. just because, I mean, you had the emotion of an overtime walk-off win on Monday Night Football. So the place – you know, you won the game, so you're happy about that. And then I think it's almost like when you go to the dentist and you get Novocaine and <laughs> and you walk at it like an hour or two later, it wears off, and then yeah. you realize what's really going on. And I think when it wore off, I think the Jets realized, oh, damn, we just lost Aaron <laughs> Rodgers. So <laughs> I, I think it was sort of like that. But I wanted to ask, so you you, you played for Stark. You were playing with the Jets when, Aaron, when uh, Brett Favre was there. And you yeah. were there when Tebow was there. And I am and by no means am I equating Tim Tebow yeah, yeah, no. on the same level of a Rogers or a Favre. But in terms of celebrity, he was yeah. very popular in the New York market. I'm wondering, what's it like being in the locker room when you have one player who is just like attracting so much attention? It's like when you when the media walks in the locker room on a Wednesday, everybody runs to that guy's locker. And being a guy on the team, I'm wondering what what that's like, what that dynamic does for the other players in the locker room. I mean, is there jealousy or, or is or how do you guys react when one guy attracts so much? Oh, that's a great question, Rich. I've never, yeah, that's really good. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, so interestingly, the two guys that you name were really, I'm trying to think now, but there was nobody that got the attention. Like when I was, in, when I, if I were to think about the scenario you've laid out, really Favre and, and Tebow were like totally set apart as far as attention, you know, uh, from the media. 
than anyone else I've played with. You know, so even with Alex Smith in Kansas City, I'm trying to think of, I really have anybody like that with the, the, as popular as those two. Um, and so, yeah, no, for, for me personally, I mean, I was, I would imagine there's probably some jealousy towards the top of the roster. Um, but for me, I, I, you know, I was never the most popular. So I, I understood it. I was always, you know, I was grateful that we had a guy specifically like Favre. Um, I was grateful that we had a guy that we could really, that I knew we could lean on. Now, obviously things didn't play out like we thought they would that season, but it was, that was like, I was like the first time I was like, wow, this is nice having a really good quarterback, you know? Um, so, you know, I was he was loaded too. That. that team was loaded. Yeah. Yeah, man. Rich, that was, yeah, that was a, a opportunity wasted there. We, we could have done so much more with that group, but, but yeah, no, I, so just having him in the locker room, that was the first time I was like, man, we're, we're in good hands. Um, so I don't remember feeling any sort of jealousy, but what I, what I do remember rich for both, uh, Favre and Tebow was just wow. This is a this is a higher order of celebrity. Like, do you remember we were in Long Island and um, you know there was always a lot of people at the training camp practices. But I remember when Favre showed up, it was like, ah, yeah. it looked like we were at the stadium. You know what I mean? Like the 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 field around the around the practice field for training camp at Hofstra was just slammed. And the same thing with with Tebow, the number of people that would come and every storyline was based on him. And, um, yeah, that, so I just, you know, I'd never seen celebrity like that until those two guys got there. We remember the Favre day. It was, it was a Sunday and it was, they, they mm-hmm. listed the attendant. They had about 10,000 people there. And like, normally the jets would get about 2000 people there at, yeah. at Hofstra for a Sunday. <laughs> and I remember him, he was the last guy walking out of the locker room that day. And they were playing Bruce Springsteen's glory days. And he comes out and, uh, and the place. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, damn, the Jets have Brett Favre. You know, I, it's, it was very surreal. It was hard to – and Tebow was just a diff, – that was like a circus almost because the guy barely played. And, you know, I mean, that, that just must have been weird being on that team that year. But one thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go, uh, and I think you could relate to this, and I think Jet fans would be interested in hearing this. So Bryce Huff is going to be a free agent. You know, he came up as an undrafted free agent, uh, unheralded guy, much like yourself. You were an undrafted player who came out of Maine. You worked your way up, and then you you became a free agent, and you, and you left the Jets. You know, you got a really good deal from Kansas City, and you left. And Bryce Huff is going to be going through the same process now, and Jet fans are going to be heartbroken if he leaves. What are the emotions? You know, the Jets gave you your chance, so I'm sure there's a certain amount of loyalty to the organization, but it comes down to some business, you know. So what was it like for you and just the different emotions you felt going through that change? It was so hard, Rich. It was so hard. Uh, uh, And especially I remember when I first got into Kansas City and and I was – at their facility and thought, oh yeah, I, you know, it's amazing. I, I forgot there's 31 other facilities in the NFL, uh, you know, cause New York was just all I knew. And you're right. They gave me the chance. It was certainly, it was certainly difficult. I mean, it's just, you, you know how it is. I mean, just like you said, that you have the, the NFL is short, so short, you never know uh, when your day is done. And so much money as you can. Um, and just the difference between um, New York, what New York was willing to offer and what Kansas City was willing to offer was just, it was just too much. Um, 
and I don't blame them. And and honestly, Rich, you got um, Sheldon Richardson, who was exponentially better than I was. Um, so it worked out better for the Jets. But yeah, for me, but for me personally, it was uh, it was tough. I, I didn't want to leave New York, um, uh, and I still there's still times I wonder what you know what what else what what I could have done in New York and uh, being with that group and. Um, you know, playing for Rex again and, you know, Carl Dunbar and all those guys uh, that, that they were huge as, as far as my development and growth. And so, yeah, no, uh, you just, you just, at the end of the day, you have to go where they're going to pay you the most money. And that, that was Kansas city. And I was very blessed. You know what I mean? I got to be a part of the foundation of the Andy Reed era, you know, the initial, so that's something I can, I can hang my hat on, but, and I'm I'm really grateful for that and to be a part of Chiefs Kingdom and, and all of that. But I do wonder what you know what my legacy would have been like had I uh, stayed in New York. And so that's always something I, I I do think about. And and like you said, I bleed green. I mean, I've I've been a Jets fan my whole life. And so Kansas City, they my friends are still there. Andy Reid is still there. The coaches. So I'm I'm rooting hard for them. But ultimately, I'm a I'm a Jets fan through and through. Well, you, you did make the playoffs two out of three years in Kansas City, so that I would say that was a successful run. And like you said, yeah. you were on the ground floor of what is now uh, a tremendous NFL dynasty. Mike DeVito, I can't thank you enough. You're you're a, you're a great dude. Always love hanging out with you a little bit. And uh, enjoy the rest of the uh, – get through the winter, and uh, maybe we'll catch yeah. up down the road. All right, how about McCole Hardman scoring the game-winning touchdown in overtime in the Super Bowl, the former Jet? I mean, that's just like the capper on the Jet season, isn't it? I mean, the guy was a total non-factor for the Jets. They gave him, uh, what was it, over $3 million in guaranteed money. They couldn't figure out a way to use him. He got very frustrated. He started complaining behind the scenes, and he gets traded for basically a bag of balls. And... He goes back to the Chiefs, and sure enough, in the biggest moment of the NFL season, he scores the touchdown. Good for him. Tough one for Jets fans to swallow. But that got me to thinking, what other ex-Jets went on to do something like that? So I've come up with a list. My top ex-Jets who went on to Super Bowl glory elsewhere in their post-Jets career. So this is my top eight list. Now, I might be missing someone. We're talking about 67-something years of Jet history, so I apologize if I missed someone. If I did miss an obvious name, let me know on social media. But here's my top eight list of ex-Jets who went on to Super Bowl glory. Number eight, Mike Pinnell, the current Chiefs defensive tackle. He has won two Super Bowls with the Chiefs. Good for him. Number seven, remember Bobby Hamilton with the Jets played in the mid-'90s under those co-tight teams? He went on to be a starter with the Patriots and won two Super Bowl rings with the Patriots. We used to call him the big dog, a really good guy, Bobby Hamilton. Number six, Kareem McKenzie, right tackle from the Jets, a third-round pick. Well, I think it was back in, what was it, 01? Goes on to win two Super Bowl rings with the New York Giants. Number five, Keyshawn Johnson. You know, explosive personality, leaves the Jets in a controversial trade, and then goes to Tampa and wins that elusive Super Bowl ring with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Number four, Jonathan Vilma, 
pretty similar path to Keyshawn, the first-round pick with the Jets. A good player with the Jets, gets traded to the Saints, makes some Pro Bowls, wins a Super Bowl ring, Jonathan Vilmer. Number three, a very high Jets draft choice back in 97. Bill Parcells' first draft choice, James Farrier, had a solid four years with the Jets, signs with the Steelers in free agency, wins two Super Bowl rings with the Steelers, becomes like almost a legendary player with the Steelers, uh, made an All-Pro, made some Pro Bowls, a forever linked to the Steelers. So James Farrier, number three on my list. Number two, Darrell Revis, now a Hall of Famer. Uh, the Jets traded him. He went to Tampa Bay. It didn't work out. He goes to uh, New England. He wins a Super Bowl in his only season with the Patriots, with Belichick, with Brady. He makes all pro. Darrell Revis, number two on my list. And number one on our list, the top ex-Jet who went on to Super Bowl glory elsewhere, John Riggins. Running back with the Jets. I mean, he was a really good player with the Jets. He rushed for 1,000 yards in the early 70s, early to mid-70s. Goes to Washington, wins a Super Bowl, wins a Super Bowl MVP, uh, really racks up a Hall of Fame career in Washington, synonymous with some of those great Joe Gibbs teams. Uh, so John Riggins, who, you know, the Jets just, they cut him. You know, there was a contract dispute. They cut him. He goes to Washington and absolutely flourishes. So he's number one on the list. And maybe someday we'll have Nicole Hardman on the list. But that Hardman thing got me to thinking. And, uh, you know, sometimes ex-Jets, they go on to bigger and better things. And that's okay. That's the NFL. That happens. I want to thank our guest, Mike DeVito, for stopping by for some uh, Chiefs talk, for some Jets talk. And, of course, as always, we thank our producer, Jeff Scopin, for putting this all together. And we'll touch base in a few weeks when we get closer to free agency. So until then, we'll talk to you next time on Flight Deck.